You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. You can open up your Bibles to Psalm 44. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will help you out with that right now as they come up and down the aisle. Just raise up your, your hand. And I got a question for you. What's your favorite kind of music? Are you into sort of like hip-hop and R&B or more rock and roll, maybe country western or electronica, heavy metal, emo, screamo, bluegrass, dance, classical? What kind of music is on your phone right now? What was on the radio in your car as you made your way here? If you're going to go out on a run or do a workout, what, what do you have in your earbuds? What, what kind of concerts do you like to attend? What's your favorite kind of music? Maybe you're like me, and it, it sort of depends on the moment. You don't really have a favorite kind of music. You just, whatever you're listening to, you're just really into at the time. Well, the book of Psalms, it's kind of like the mixtape or the, the playlist for the people of God. And what we can find, biblically speaking, is that the, the people of God have a very eclectic approach to music. The book of Psalms has all kinds of types of music. Some of you might think, well, the book of Psalms, that's all just like pipe organs, stuff, shirt stuff. No. There's all kinds of different sounds. There's all kinds of different lyrics. There's all kinds of different styles of poetry found in the book of Psalms. There are worship and praise psalms, and we're pretty familiar with that. That's what comes to our mind when, as soon as we hear the word psalm, isn't it? There's psalms of thanksgiving, but you know there's also a category of psalms called royal psalms, psalms that are written specifically about the king of Israel and his relationship to God and to the other people. There are psalms of wisdom that are written to teach people, to teach people important lessons about how to live their lives. There's even love poems. Next week, Psalm 45, we're going to be studying a love poem in the book of Psalms about a wedding. But you know what the most frequently requested psalm is? Do you know what the, in, the, in the top 150 that we have uh, Right here in the Word of God, you know that over one-third of the Psalms in the Bible come from one specific category. Over 60 Psalms fall under the category of Psalms of Lament. Psalms that are meant to be sung in a minor key with your voice quivering and tears swelling in your eyes. That tells us something about what it means to live your life trying to follow God. That tells us something about what it means to live in a broken world. That tells us something about how we're supposed to worship, how we're supposed to pray, how we're supposed to live. And Psalm 44 is one of those psalms. It begins by saying to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, Oh God, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O oh God. 
ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forsaken you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Lord, we know that there are some things that we need to learn, and so we invite you right now to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we know that there are some things that we need to believe, so we pray that you would grant us faith by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we know right now that there are things about the way that we think about you, the way we think about our lives, the way we think about life in general that needs to change, and so we pray that you would change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change the way that we think. Change the way that we feel. Change the way that we act, Lord, by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be present with us now as we study this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think what's so painful about Psalm 44 is that it begins in a way that's so positive. I mean, the first eight verses sound like it's a totally different psalm. That's the strange thing about the psalms. You know, last time I was here, we looked at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Two different psalms, but they seem to fit together. Now we're looking at Psalm 44. It's one psalm, but it seems like it's two different ones, doesn't it? That transition after that Selah in verse 8 at the beginning and then leading into verse 9, it's so different, isn't it? 
But there's a, there's a lesson as we look at this psalm, not by taking it apart and analyzing it, but as we look at it like a whole. There, there's something that we can really embrace and take away and apply to our lives here. And so this is a different kind of psalm. And so because of that, we're going to have a different kind of outline today. Normally you'd have sort of like point one, and here's the first section, and point two, and here's the second section. But today we're actually just going to, I'm going to help formulate for you a complete sentence that, that will, and as, the, as we work our way through the, the psalm, we're going to be filling in this sentence that will help us understand the, the lesson that can be learned from this psalm. So here's the first part of the sentence. Remembering God's triumphs in the past. Remembering God's triumphs in the past. This is that positive part at the beginning. It, it says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. These people had been listening. These people had been listening to what their fathers, and notice how fathers is plural. It's not just, it's not just their fathers, but it's their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers. And it's not just people in their own family line, it's everyone who has gone before them. They have heard the stories of what God had done in the past. And you might be here today and you were like, you know what, I wasn't really in the mood for a lament psalm because things are going pretty well in my life right now. And this is pretty, I mean, this is nice if there's people who are struggling and they can hear Psalm 44. But, but I, I'm not in a hard place. Well, listen, what you need to be doing right now is you need to do what this psalmist did. You need to be listening to someone teaching you about the great and awesome deeds of the Lord because you don't know when you're going to need it. And so this person, for a, for a season of time, was in a position of learning and receiving from their fathers everything that God had done. And we're going to see how what they had learned about God in the past is actually going to help them endure what they're going through. And so they had heard from their fathers, this is what God had commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that we're supposed to teach diligently to our children when we sit down, when we walk, when we lie down, when we rise up, as a sign on our head, as, as, as a frontlet on our, our foreheads and on our hands, we're supposed to paint it on our doorposts, we're supposed to be telling our children all the time about the word of God. And that's why what's happening around the corner here in Harvest Kids, that is not a 90 minute daycare why parents go to service. That is an intentional discipleship program so that the next generation can know the mighty deeds of the Lord and what he has done, as it says in verse 1, in the days of old. Then verse 2 gives us the content of what this person had been taught by their fathers. It says, with your own hand you drove out the nations, but them you planted. He's referring to Joshua and the people of God and the conquest of Canaan. God was the one who drove out the nations and then planted the people of Israel to live in that place. Then the story goes back even further at the end of verse 2. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So he started with the conquest of Canaan, but then he goes further back in biblical history to the exodus from Egypt. The peoples that were afflicted, that's the Egyptians, they were afflicted with plagues so that the people could go free. So he's telling the stories of old and he's going further back and further back talking about the greatness and the faithfulness of God. Verse 3 clarifies, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. They didn't use their swords to, to dismantle the wall around Jericho. 
It wasn't the strength of their arm that forced their way out of Egypt. No, it, it was, says, but it was your right hand and your arm. God did it. God did it. God didn't win all of those battles. God didn't part the Red Sea. Or sorry, God did win all those battles. God did part the Red Sea. God is the one who turned the Nile to blood. The people of Israel didn't put boils on everyone's skin and frogs in everyone's bed. That wasn't their plan. That wasn't their idea. That wasn't the strength of their arm. It was the Lord who did it. And then I love this. It describes why he did it at the end of verse 3. And the light of your face for you delighted in them. So he did it with his right, with his right arm and his right hand. But he also did it with the light of his face. That's a picture of favor. I shared with the Rosamas this morning that, that blessing from Numbers chapter 6, which the priests were to speak over the people of Israel every single day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift up his face towards you. The favor of God. That was the only reason why the people, they weren't better than the Egyptians. They weren't better than the Canaanites. They weren't stronger. They weren't more lovely. God loved them and he chose to show favor to them. He delighted in them. Then in verse 4, it gets personal. So he's heard the stories. Now he says, you are my God. That's what happened. That's what you did then for them. But this is affecting me now personally. God forgive us if we just come to church or read our Bibles and just learn some historical facts without actually seeing how it applies to our own lives. He says, you are my king, O God. You're my king. Ordain salvation for Jacob, that's his nation. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. See, it's in the present tense now. And then he says, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. The people back then didn't trust in their sword, so I'm not going to trust in my sword either. Notice the word trust, that's the key word. This is the second part of the sentence we need to fill out. Remembering God's triumphs in the past builds our trust in his power. Builds our trust in his power. We can't trust in our own power, our own physical strength, our own ability to talk ourselves out of situations, our own mental strength, our own finances, whatever we might trust in. The psalmist is saying, as I look at history and what God has done, it's not up to me, it's up to him. And so I'm not going to trust in myself. Deuteronomy 17 says, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who trusts in himself. We're not to be wise in our own eyes. We're supposed to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, Proverbs 3 says. And in all of our ways acknowledge him and he will make our paths straight. It's about trust. Not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually. In him we give thanks to your name forever, Selah. Now that would be a terrific place to stop. Everyone in favor of closing in prayer and singing one more song and then having lunch? Doesn't that just seem like it's just a nice ending? Well, that's not how the psalm ends because that's not, that's not how life is. After he states his own personal trust, there's this Selah, which is a, 
Uh, it's a, a musical term, we're guessing. It, it, it means lift up. So maybe it means lift your hands up from your instrument to have a rest or have the congregation stand to sing this next part. And then in verse 9, it begins with a conjunction, the word but. Now we normally love these kinds of conjunctions in the Bible. We talk a lot about them. I think some of your favorite verses in the Bible might even have a conjunction like this. Normally we celebrate them. Verses like Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It's negative, then there's a conjunction, and now it's positive. Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, it goes on to explain the gospel. We, we love those kind of conjunctions, don't we? But this one's a little bit troubling. We, we love to look at trials, you know, through our rear view mirror. But what, what about when the trial is splattered on our windshield? And we can't see in front of us. And we're moving 90 kilometers an hour. What do we do then? Well, we've got to remember God's triumphs in the past. And we've got to be careful to build our trust in his power. And that's specifically what the psalmist does now. He says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. And have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. The, the issue is not that the enemy is too big and too strong. The enemy is always too big and too strong. I mean, the people of Israel were, were, were never this mighty, numerous uh, nation. They, they, they were always the underdog in battle. The other nations always had better weapons, always had more so. The issue is not that the enemy's a problem. The issue is that God is not with them. He was always the X factor for them in battle. And so in, in, in verse 9 it says, You have not gone out with our armies. That's why this is a psalm of lament. It's because they feel as though God is not with them. Verse 11, You have made us like sheep for slaughter. One of my seminary professors uh, from Heritage, which Deb uh, mentioned uh, during announcements, one of our ministry partners was, was David Barker, and he's an expert on the Psalms. And he says, when you read Psalm 44, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, Psalm 23, and the Lord is our shepherd. What, what kind of a shepherd would lead his sheep to the, to the slaughter? And sometimes we have the, these misconceptions about the book of Psalms and really about Psalm 23. You know, it's the Lord is my shepherd and still waters and green pastures. But we've got to remember that that's not all the book of Psalms. We also need to remember that that's not even an accurate description of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 includes the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 44 is just a, a, more, a more detailed tour of that valley that the shepherd sometimes leads us through. 
Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Think about that verse in light of what they said in verse 2 about being set free. God was the, the one who emancipated the slaves, the one who, 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 who set them free from Egypt. And now in verse 12, they feel like he's turning around and selling them back into slavery. And they're worthless to him. They're being sold for a trifle. There's no high price. Verse 13, you've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. There should be a footnote in your ESV Bible beside that word laughingstock. It, it, it refers to the shaking of the head. You know, SMH. I guess that was a thing even before social media and texting. But just think about that. As soon as, oh, oh the nation of Israel, right, right. Whenever, whenever the nationality was brought up, people just looked down and shook their head at, at the tragedy, at, at, at the confusion of how could this be happening. They had won so many great battles in the past and now all we can do is shake our heads. If you look back at the stanza we just studied, verses 9 to 14, notice, notice who is who is being held responsible for everything that is happening here. The psalmist is very aware of the sovereignty of God in the midst of their suffering. Verse 9, you have rejected us. Verse 10, you have made us turn back. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter. Verse 12, you have sold your people. Verse 13, you have made us the taunt. Verse 14, you have made us a byword. You have done it, you have done it, you have done it. This, this last half of Psalm 44 reads a lot like the book of Job. Job is, is a book about suffering, isn't it? But Job makes no excuses. It explains right from the outset who is in charge. That God is sovereign over all of it. Verse 15, all day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Just like in the book, just like in the book of Job, where Job repeatedly asserts his innocence. His friends come and sit with him for seven days. That was good. They were being good friends. It all went downhill when his friends started opening their mouths. And they tried to explain, oh Job, here's why you're suffering. This is why it must have happened. And Job repeatedly asserted his, his innocence. No, this is not happening. God is not punishing me for something I've done wrong. And the psalmist in Psalm 44 asserts their innocence. Verse 18, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. The psalmist knows that the suffering could be because of sin. And when we experience suffering and difficulty in our lives, one of the first questions we should ask ourselves is, my present suffering... A consequence for a, for a decision I made in the past. In 1988, the first Harvest Bible Chapel was started by James McDonald. And James McDonald uh, s s 
so often says this, this one very profound and powerful statement. He says, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And listen, I wish I had embraced that. I, I, I heard him say that a long time ago, and I, and I have experienced the reality of that statement. When I have chosen to sin, I have chosen to allow suffering to come into my life. And oftentimes, when it's the suffering that alerts me to realize the sin that has caused it. And that is so often the case, but that is not only the ever time or the only reason for suffering in our lives. And so we need to humbly ask ourselves, ask the Lord, is there, is there a sin issue here that is, that is bringing about all of the, is, is this a consequence of a bad decision that I have made? And ultimately, the, the psalmist knows I mean, sin is rooted in deception, isn't it? Satan is a liar, and so we lie to get ourselves into sin, and then so often we can continue to lie and not realize that we are sinning. And so he says, well, the Lord knows the heart. He knows my heart. And if I am sinning, I don't think I am, but if I am, God, would you please tell me? Would you show me? Then verse 22 says, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as, here it is again, as sheep to be slaughtered. It says, verse 22, all of this is happening for your sake. This gives a little bit of clarity about why they are being attacked. The enemies aren't just attacking them, you know, for their land. The enemies aren't just attacking them for their resources. It says, for your sake, they are killed all the day long. He's just, they're describing religious persecution in some way, shape, or form. That the enemies that are coming are coming because the people are taking a stand for God. The, the enemies are fighting them because of how they have chosen to relate to God in covenant faithfulness. Which leads them to pray very boldly. And I'm not sure if you would ever feel comfortable... Saying to God what the psalmist is about to pray in verse 23 where he tells God, awake. Why are you sleeping? I mean, Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, this is what he, he used to, to mock the, the, the prophets of Baal. Maybe your God's sleeping. Maybe that's why he's not answering you. And now this is being applied to God. This is, this is the use of anthropomorphism, which is using human traits or characteristics to describe the divine being. God cannot slumber or sleep. We know that from, from Psalm 121. So he's, he's never slept. He's never got drowsy. He's never been in church trying to listen to the sermon like some of you are right now being like, He's never had little crusties in his eyes or a film on his tongue. He's never had bedhead. Man, I wish I had bedhead. <laughs> he can't sleep. I mean, isn't, doesn't this remind you of the story of Jesus in the boat and the storm's going and he's, a, he's asleep? But he's the sovereign son of God, isn't he? And what do they say? Don't you care that we're drowning? And then Jesus just says, peace be still. And the wind and the waves ceased. So they say, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Verse 24, 
Why do you hide your face? Again, remember, what makes this psalm so particularly painful is that it's so positive at the beginning. There, there, he's saying, why do you hide your face in verse 24, but he, he had already said in verse 3 that he saved them by the light of his face. And now that, now that face, that, that shining face of the favor of God, that showed that he delighted in his people, now that face has turned away. Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? God can't forget anything. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But again, the psalmist, it's a poem. And he's, he's drawing on all of these literary devices to describe what they are going through. And then in verse 25, he says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. So now we have an indication of the, the posture of prayer. This is how serious they are. How, What's their posture? They're not standing. They're not sitting. They're not even on their knees. Their belly clings to the ground. They are lying flat out prostrate before the Lord. God, you need to do something here. They get as low as they can, as far down as they can, and then they pray with all of their might in verse 26, rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The last word of this psalm is indeed the most important word. Steadfast love. You may not trace it right when you first read it. It seems like this psalm ends with, with them lying in the dust, lying out flat and nothing happening. But there is an element of hope here. With that last statement, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That word steadfast love, it's one word in Hebrew, it's the word hesed. It's such an all-encompassing word, it's such a beautiful and glorious and powerful word that English translators really strain themselves to try to find the, the proper uh, English word or collection of words to describe it. The ESV uses steadfast love. The New American Standard calls it loving kindness. The King James calls it mercy or sometimes grace. The NIV calls it unfailing love. It's this never quitting, never giving up, always there, never stopping love of God. I love the word steadfast love. To, 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 a stead is a place. The pl your homestead is the place where you stay. And, and, and to fast is to fasten something, like a drill. And God's steadfast love is that he has placed it on you. He has fastened his love on you and nothing can take it away. And that is the appeal that the psalmist makes here right now. He says, listen, my life is a mess right now. And God, I don't even know where you are. I, it feels like you're sleeping. It feels like you've turned your face from me. But one thing I do know is that you are a God of steadfast love, is that you have chosen to love me and that nothing can ever change that. The way this psalm ends is so powerful and so profound. It reminds us of verses like Romans 8. Look at this familiar passage in Romans 8, beginning at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
This was originally written in Greek, not in Hebrew, but if it were in Hebrew, it would be who would separate us from the hesed of Christ. What could separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sleep to be as sheep to be slaughtered. It says, as it is written. Where is it written? It's written in Psalm 44. When, when Paul wants to really sum up in a succinct, clear way the never-stopping love of God, of all of the places he could have gone in the Old Testament, he doesn't go to Psalm 23. He goes to one of the deepest and the darkest poems in all of Scripture. And he, he wants to teach about the love of Christ and how strong it is. He says, our love, the love that Christ has for us, the love that he showed for us on the cross and dying for us as our substitute for our sin, that kind of love can even get us through Psalm 44 moments in our lives. And I love what he says. For your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! It's not going to end that way. Psalm 23 doesn't end in the valley of the shadow of death. It ends with surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that word mercy is the word hesed. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It may feel like we are being conquered but we are conquerors. It may seem like we are losing, but we are winning. It may seem like we are dying, but we have newness of life. This is what Psalm 44 teaches us. That as we think about God's triumphs in the past, and for us as the people of God, that greatest triumph over the greatest enemy was Christ's resurrection from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins and the gift of eternal life. When we have the cross in view, and as we think about how God has given us his son and has promised to with him graciously give us all things, that's also in Romans 8, we then can build our trust in him when we face our trials in the present. Remembering God's triumphs in the past, Builds our trust in his power when we face trials in our present. The psalmist would have been thinking about those past victories. And, and when we think about what it means to, to remember God's past triumphs, it's not just having a cursory overview of the general events in the biblical story. No, it's, it's digging deeper. It's reading God's word every day. It's systematically working your way through the scripture because we know they didn't get out of Egypt in an afternoon. There was bricks without straw before. They were living through all of the Pharaoh says, yes, we can go. No, he says, no, we can. And then another plague. And the Pharaoh says, yes. And then no, we there was a, a massive period of time of waiting and wondering and where are you, God? They didn't make it into the promised land overnight. There was a big Red Sea in the way. There was also a large wilderness in 40 years. There were also all of those battles that they needed to fight. 
You see, the danger is for us to think that, that back then when God was working, that it was really easy. No, listen, here's the thing. There's two, there's two mistakes there. One is back then it wasn't easy. And secondly, it's not just that God was working back then. He's working right now. And when we remember his triumphs in the past, it builds our trust so that we can trust him when we face trials in our present. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing, never giving up, steadfast love. And we thank you that that love that we have in Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise that you have ever made. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, that you would help each and every one of us. Maybe we are in the valley of the shadow of death right now. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would flood each and every heart with an awareness of your covenant faithfulness, your permanent and personal, unchangeable love that you have towards us. Lord, thank you that we know that we are indeed more than conquerors and that nothing can separate us from your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.